This week's guest is Leo Robichek, who joins us from London, England. Leo is the Vice President of Food and Beverage and Head of Bars at Seidel. Leo has been responsible for concepting, developing, and leading the food, beverage, and cocktail programs and teams at all Nomad properties. Leo has also helped lead the Cocktail Apprentice Program at Tales of the Cocktail for a decade. We have a great conversation with Leo and his story from the time he started working in the industry to where he is now is a fascinating journey you'll want to hear. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm your host, Kip. This is the producer extraordinaire, Dan Serrata. What's going on with you? Hey, man, not too much. Just enjoying the last uh, days of the nice, warm summer weather. Uh-huh. And then you're off jet-setting again? Uh... Yeah, flying up to Belgium and Luxembourg mm-hmm. for work. So just going to do some hanging out for a couple of days, and then I'm going to have to work. Yeah. Should be fun. Sounds rough. Yeah. Well, it's not bad. <laughs> i got to say, I don't have to pay for the trip, so that's all A-OK by me. Perfect. We have a great guest, as usual, for you this week. We'll bring Leo Robichek in in just a second. Before we do that, we should mention that if you're a resident of the city of Waterloo, don't forget to vote on October 24th. Early voting is October 8th. Yours truly, your your host here at the Industry Podcast, will be running for mayor of the city of Waterloo, so you're going to want to get in and vote. Uh, also, stay tuned to the Babylon Sisters Bar Instagram feed, and you'll learn about the campaign launch party coming up at Babylon Sisters. That's my bar in Uptown Waterloo. Also, of course, Sugar Run in downtown Kitchener. Stay tuned to Sugar Run Bar on Instagram to learn about all the crazy cool events we got going on down there. Hey, if someone wants to get a vote for Kip for mayor sign, how do they go about doing that? Uh, you can just check my website, kipsaunders.ca. We're looking for donations. We're looking for volunteers. And if you want lawn signs, buttons, and or door hangers, I have all that on the way. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to get a big fat one on your front lawn, pal. <laughs> Looking forward to it. I get back from my trip. It's just going to be there. Yeah. Uh, okay, enough about me. If, uh, if you like what we're doing here on the program, you're going to want to subscribe, rate, and review. Just leave us a five-star review. Those are the ones we like. Uh, but don't forget to subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. So we've had great episodes uh, in the, over the last few weeks uh, in the archives. You want to check out, uh, last week we had... Cristina Robles. Yeah. And prior to that we had uh, DJ Twist, Brian Orr. Mm-hmm. That was a fun one. And then Kevin Kos and Yelena did that special two-parter. Yeah, we also had Elisa, the badass bartender, oh, on with Brian. Chris Robles as well. So look correct. forward to that. Uh, you can check those out in the archives. If you want to be a guest on the show or if you want to sponsor the show, the best way to do that is to in, email us at info at theindustrypodcast.club or you can DM us directly, the industry podcast on Instagram. And I think that's, oh, Zach Hanna, of course, at zachhanna.co. He does all the great artwork for us on the Instagram feed. He also is responsible for all my um, political signs and door hangers and buttons that are coming out as well. So always a huge Thanks to Zach Hanna. Check him out for all your graphic arts needs. Sweet. Okay, enough about us. Let's talk to Leo Robichek, joining us here from London, England. How's it going, Leo? Going well. How are you? We're doing all right. Thanks for joining us. It's a little later for you. Uh, (laughs) And apparently we dragged you away from a dinner meeting, so we appreciate that. It's totally fine. I thankfully read through through the notes and it said, uh, have a drink or two, and I've had six, so it's great. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) That's amazing. 
Okay, so Leo, I'm just going to dive right into this because you've had like an incredible career here. But let's, I'd kind of like to start at the beginning. You, you're from Venezuela. So how did you originally break into the service industry? I mean, like a lot of other people, just by sheer luck and mistake. You know, I was born in Venezuela, but grew up in the States. I moved to Miami when I was about five. Uh, and then after college, made my way to New York City. And I guess I had what I call my quarter life crisis. I decided to leave, uh, you know, the banking world and decided to go back to school. And in that meantime, one of my uh, coworkers was an investor in a bar uh, restaurant and uh, got me a job there while I was taking courses at night. I'm sorry, during the day. So I just started working in hospitality. I did it a bit when I was in in college, but I was not a great bartender back then. I mean, I basically got my first industry job at 16 with a fake ID. I was a, a host. And then <laughs> I got my first bartending job at 17 when I was in college with a fake ID. If somebody didn't show up, they were like, hey, uh, who knows how to bartend? And I raised my hand and had no clue what I was doing. But there was an old uh, Playboy's bartender's manual there. And, you know, <laughs> oh, that, those are old ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was in Miami at the time. But in the second turn of the bartending world, I uh, I was lucky enough to work in this place called Sushi Samba that was run by basically one of the guys from Tipling Brothers. And he was their beverage director. And he made us take mandatory sake, beer, and wine classes. Oh, and cool. everyone else sort of used to get pissed off that they had to do this. I secretly loved it. And I thought I knew a little bit about booze and a little bit about wine, but I realized I knew nothing and started my journey while I was in school, taking all the science courses so I could do a post back to flight to med school. From there, I worked in a few other places and decided that I wanted to work in a place that they treated me nicely instead of, uh, you know, those trendy places that might have been a little bit more intense. Uh, and started working for Danny Meyer at 11 Madison Park. And that was before 11 Madison Park was 11 Madison Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, you know, zero Michelin stars, two New York Times stars, no criti- critical acclaim in any way. And I was lucky there because nobody was really paying attention to the bar program. And it had been open for about seven years. And actually, weirdly enough, Eben Freeman did the opening menu and nobody had done anything since then. So I just started playing around with things when people weren't really paying attention. And I got to create my own first cocktail list. I think started there in 2005. I created my own first list in 2006. It was a pretty mediocre list, if I say so myself. But (laughs) yeah, back then I would just basically pull any cocktail book that I could, which was there was maybe about... Three of them widely available, which was like Gary Reagan's and Dale DeGroff's. And um, I found a few old vintage books and I just tested them out. And I remember, I think my first list had a last word on it, but I inherited this whole liquor room and I only had VEP chartreuse. So I was selling the last word with VEP chartreuse. For like, <laughs> I knew nothing. Like, it was pretty bad. It's amazing. Yeah. If only I had known back then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But things sort of change. And, you know, I, I always loved food and beverage. And I've always been, I don't know, I guess just a little bit OCD, um, very like analytical, a bit of an overthinker, but also touch insecure because I was never trained or I never had a great bar mentor. So anytime I would do anything, I would just ask myself if that was the best way that I could do it and why did I do it that way? And I would just go back and always think about what I was doing. And from that sort of came around style. Uh, and then about a year later, or a few months later, a gentleman by the name of Daniel Hume started as a new chef and a guy by the name of Will Gadera started as a new GM. And they sat me down one day and said, hey, we want to make this one of the best bars in the world. And 
I sort of laughed and they were like, we're not kidding. And I was like, okay. And we went on our way and I'm not saying that we did that, but um, you know, we definitely got a bit of a claim for what we were doing. And, you know, before long, I was really proud of the things that we were putting out. I was also really lucky to work for a chef that realized that cocktails were important uh, in a time that a lot of my friends were opening bars around the city uh, in restaurants uh, that uh, were getting more recognition than actual the chefs. Uh, and they were getting fired for having good cocktails. So, right, yeah. <laughs> um, so I had like a lot of support. And to me, the kitchen taught me a lot and ended up becoming like my biggest ally, but also my biggest crutch. And that I learned proper kitchen etiquette. I learned how to use pretty much all the fancy equipment they had there. And I had a beautiful pantry of um, really amazing food available to me that was really hyper seasonal and and delicious. So and so, okay. So th- at that point, you're now this bar's getting and that restaurant's getting incredible acclaim. You start getting the yeah, sort of the critical critical acclaim at that point. And you're sort of growing with the restaurant at the same time. Would yeah. you say that? Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, we got the New York Times reviewed us and gave us three stars, and we got four stars. Then we got a Michelin star. Uh, and then we Tales of the Cocktail came around and they had the first ever Best Restaurant Bar uh, Award and we were nominated and ended up winning, which was pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess after that, you know, brands started paying attention a little bit more. And then we got really lucky in that this gentleman by the name of Andrew Zobler, who uh, now I work for him, he's he's actually our CEO and, and one of my partners in, in Sidel, which is part of the Nomad, or the Nomad's part of Sidel. But he approached us in 2010 and said, hey, we want you guys to be partners and create this new hotel with us. And it was like the most insane timing because I had about one semester left in my postback. Uh, the way postbacks work is then you have a gap year in between because it's too late to apply for med school. And then you start med school the following year. And Will Gadera, who was just a GM then, sat down with me. I don't mean just a GM, but he was a GM. And he said, hey, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I was like, hey, I'm going to go to med school. You know, I've spent a lot of money. I'm going to do it. And he's like, let's pretend that didn't happen. What would you do? And I was like, no, it's going to happen. He's like, no, let's pretend. And I was like, well, I've always been super enamored by, you know, history of New York. And I would pick up any book that talked about New York and, you know, the turn of the century. And they always mentioned all of these amazing hotel bars, like, you know, the Oak Room at the Plaza or the Gonquin. And I remember going to all these places when I moved to New York and, while they existed, they sadly didn't exist in the glory that they did when they were, you know, in, in in their heyday, per se. So I always thought it would be cool to open a hotel bar that was for the community in New York City that was the modern version of a hotel bar of the past. Uh, and at that time in New York, there wasn't really a lot of hotels that people would frequent the bars. There was a few, but it's not like London where the community would really go to hotels for dining or for beverages. And he uh, took me on a walk with him the next day. And he said, hey, this uh, guy named Andrew Zobler wants us to build this hotel. And he walked me to what is now the Nomad, or well, not anymore, but what was the Nomad New York and said, hey, do you want to open this hotel with us? And that's sort of how Nomad came along. Oh, wow. That's crazy. So so I've opened some bars, but I've never actually opened a bar in a hotel. And I also am enamored with those old with the London hotel bars and the New York hotel bars. And like, if you trace the history of craft cocktailing, it always comes from these hotel bars. Right. Um, so talk to me about the, like, what's the, what, what are the main differences of saying opening a bar that's attached to a hotel as opposed to, and, and like sort of the aesthetic you were going for with it being like a classic hotel bar as opposed to opening just like a bar on a corner. Yeah. Well, I mean, 
I, I obviously have a very specific view and opinion because I only worked for restaurants and hotels at that point right. or now. But I think at the end of the day, the availability of amazing resources uh, and the availability of making connections with guests is so much more than just at a cocktail bar. So at that point, there was mostly just speakeasies in New York City. You know, there was... I guess there wasn't really any other major cocktail programs that weren't sort of like a speakeasy. There was obviously Pegu and Milk and Honey, and uh, which is now Attaboy. And I think PDT was definitely open. They opened around the same time. Oh, no, they were definitely open. Death and Company was open. Flatiron was open. But they were all speakeasies that had a ton of rules and that honestly uh, are incredible, incredible bars and paved away. But they had a lot of limitations because they didn't have full kitchens. They didn't have the availability to amazing wine lists. They didn't have the money to purchase incredible spirits. They didn't have the money to, or even the space to create like these incredible brand new bars with like incredible decor. And all of those places are places that inspire me and inspired me back then still inspire me today. But when you're doing a hotel bar, you know, you have to think about quite a lot of things, right? It's it's something that is for the restaurant. It's something that's for the hotel. But for us, it was also something that was part of the community. Mm-hmm. So we had to think about how are we going to get people from the community in New York City that generally do not frequent hotels to come into a space? And then how is this also going to serve hotel guests? And how is this going to serve restaurant guests? Because that's a whole other layer of hospitality that you have to think about. In a lot of these places, the bars are basically meant to be there as an amenity for hotel guests, and they're usually not busy. Uh, when we opened our doors, we were really lucky that we were insanely busy. So we weren't expecting to be as busy as we were, which actually led to a lot of issues because we had complaints from people staying in the spaces that they couldn't get into the bar. Oh, <laughs> that's a good problem to have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it is and it's not. You know, you sort of learn a lot because in the beginning, you're like, well, why does that matter? And then you're like, oh, yeah, that definitely matters. Uh, but we were really lucky that the building next to us uh, went up for sale and we were able to buy that and build the Nomad Bar. So we had Elephant Bar and the Nomad and then we built the Nomad Bar, which uh, was able to be connected to the space. So we ended up having two other bars, which uh, a bar that was double the size, which worked for, you know, not only Overflow, but just became a bar with its own identity. Like, what are we talking about capacity wise for like pre like the, the original Elephant and then when you added the second space? Yeah, so when Nomad opened, you would walk, like it was very much designed after the cost uh, or inspired by the gentleman that did our designs, Jacques Garcia. He did actually the cost, which is in Paris. And what's really cool about that space is that their lobby is actually a working lobby, but it's their food and beverage space. And you sort of travel through and it's like full of all of these amazing quirky people and it's like a scene. So you would have to walk through our restaurant to walk into the bar which is fun because it adds a lot of vibrancy and a lot of life to the space, but also it could be annoying when you have so many people trying to get to the bar (laughs) and people are dining. Elephant Bar had a capacity of 12 seated at the bar, about another 12 that could seat in the the remaining areas and then standing room for about 60. So it wasn't huge. But then we also had the library next to it that had a capacity of 47. So altogether about 100 people could fit between those two spaces. Hmm. And, you know, we maybe about a month after opening, we had to add uh, what we call the door host, which is a fancy name for somebody who is like a security guard uh, because we were over capacity and the fire marshals kept getting upset. Uh. Uh, So we had to like take names and for people to walk into the building. Uh, So we opened the Nomad. We had capacity for about another 140 people between seating and room. Yeah, and and so altogether about 240 between the two bars. 
Oh, that's crazy. And especially in like, I can imagine rental or real estate prices in New York City at any time. But like, so you pretty much got to make sure you're busy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were busy, like, and we just kept getting busier, which was crazy. We were open for about 10 years. And sadly, you know, post pandemic, we, we lost our lease. We bought a business partner out and he uh, decided to convert it into the net who, and he had the ground lease and, and kick us out. But, but we just got busier and busier year over year, which is pretty rare for a bar, a restaurant, and a hotel, which was amazing. And I remember I would love it. Like when we would open the door at Nomad Bar, it would open at 5 p.m we'd have anywhere between 15 and 70 people waiting outside to come in oh, and the crazy. whole bar would fill up once. And it just, it was one of my favorite moments when we would just finish, you know, our pre-chef meeting and everyone would go to their areas and I would open the door and, and see all of, you know, these friendly faces walk in. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's a very, that's a rarity in any place really to have like that, like just get yeah. descended upon by that many people at once when you open. That's awesome. Yeah, we were lucky in so many ways. I mean, we opened in this one area in New York City that didn't really have a name. It's actually now called The Nomad. <laughs> when we were trying to name the area, we made up a story. Uh, I don't know if you know a lot about New York, but a lot of the names are acronyms. So like Soho is south of Houston. Noho mm-hmm. is north of Houston. Uh, like Dumbo is directly under Manhattan Bridge underpass or something like that. Like mm-hmm. so they all mean something specific. So we called it Nomad because... It meant north of Madison Square Park. Oh, okay. Um, and it was this area that didn't really have a name. A lot of people called it like uh, Little Africa because there there was um, a lot of stores that sold like fake T-shirts and like African products or like or like fake hair, and that was just what it was dubbed. But it was also surrounded by amazing parts of New York City. On one side, you had Chelsea. Uh, right below it, you had uh, Madison Square Park and the Flatiron. Um, you had Murray Hill to the right. And um, this area was just sort of the shit area that had, that was pretty high in crime. And it's funny because it's only a few blocks, but they had a really bad heroin problem at the time. Hmm. Uh, and thankfully, that definitely changed as, you know, the ACE came in and we came in and that whole area changed and the area became known as the Nomad. Uh, almost to our detriment because all the hotels and the bars and restaurants that would open nearby would have Nomad in their name. So oh. like Smith opened and it was called the Smith Nomad and people would make reservations thinking that they were making a reservation in our space. Oh, it's shit. Like, Hi, we have a 12 top and we're like, <laughs> ah, take parties of that size. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. But it was also amazing because a lot of uh, it grew into like a big food and beverage area and, you know, sort of as the tide rises, all boats rise. So mm-hmm. uh, we just kept getting busier and busier and more people kept coming into the area and it was amazing. So, yeah, I felt lucky. That's crazy. So, okay, at what point do you sort of move up the food chain and you're, you're sort of looking after opening a bunch of different restaurants for this company? Yeah, so I started as a bartender, became bar manager. Then when we started this project, I became bar director. So I was overseeing 11 Madison Park and Nomad. And I deferred, you know, med school for a year and then ended up not going, uh, obviously. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, and then after that, we really had the, only had those two properties that I was overseeing and um, we were trying to grow. But, you know, when you start working in development, and you learn about making deals, you realize that, you know, you pitch a hundred deals and you're lucky if you get one. So I didn't really know it back then, but it was a lot of heartbreak because we thought we were going to open and then, no, we never got the property. So we tried for five years to really find another property. I mean, we were really banking on London. That was the next place that we wanted to go to. Uh, and then we decided to extend our reach and we put a lot of eggs in a lot of different baskets and all of them ended up hatching by mistake when <laughs> more, 
That's uh, so, not always the way it works, right? <laughs> you can't get anything and then you get it all. Yeah. So we got um, LA, Vegas, and London, um, all those properties basically around the same time. Luckily, the London one fell through at that time. And I say luckily because uh, the space that we have now here, I just think things are meant to happen for a reason. And it's significantly better than that other space. But we opened LA. And when we did that, I got a promotion to managing partner. And I was still bar director for the company. So I became a partner with Will and Daniel and this guy, Jeff, and set a way to open all of these different spaces. Uh, and as I grew, obviously, our team grew. And it was pretty amazing. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, <laughs> to think that the whole, the whole time in... Like at this time, right up until this point, you're thinking you're going to be a doctor at some point, and then yeah. this just swerves, and you like just and now you're doing this amazing job. I never this. knew this was a viable job. Like, yeah, <laughs> like I remember touring schools with my mom in like '97, and uh, we went to Cornell as one of the schools, and they toured us through and they showed us a hotel school. And I remember looking at my mom being like, "Who would ever go to school to like?" work in a hotel in a restaurant (laughs) i should have like done that because i would have saved you know lots of money heartache and years of my life but that's an interesting question though leo because like okay so you were going to school instead for med school this whole point now lots of people go to school for host hotel and restaurant management or however they describe the program's always different whatever school you go to you obviously didn't need to do that you just sort of did it on the job training yeah Um, I mean, I was lucky, though, because I got a finance degree before. Right, okay. So I didn't understand the management side, but I had a really good mentor with Bogadera. And then also, we were just a little nutty. Like, all of us were overachievers, and we were underdogs. And uh, we all just invested time in, like, trying to better ourselves as a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, or when Will and Dan, or sorry, Daniel bought 11 Medicine Park from Danny Meyer, we really had to think about what we were going to be as a company. And I actually remember in the beginning, we were just like emulating every restaurant that we loved. And we were trying to become this fine dining restaurant to like become this hopefully, you know, four New York Times star restaurant. And we got our first review, which was actually a better review than we ever deserved. It was by the New York Observer, which is not a huge newspaper or even really relevant when it comes to food and beverage. But for us, it was probably the most relevant or the most impactful review that we got because we got four out of five stars. And I remember the reviewer said that we needed a little bit more Miles Davis. And I'll like, <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? <laughs> that could mean so, so many different things. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I knew who he was, obviously, but yeah. we did what any you know person would do. We went to the Google machine and typed in <laughs> Miles Davis and uh, started doing research. And then we sort of we had all these strategic planning meetings and we realized, like, hey, what are we trying to do? Like we're not going to become the best restaurant that we want to be or the best bar by emulating the other places that are doing it. We obviously love those places and want to respect those places, but we started looking into all of the companies that we loved. So American Airlines, JetBlue, back then, you know, American Express, you know, Google, and this was in 2010. And uh, we started reading about what they do. So for a lot of those places, they had a very specific culture that wasn't that was unique to them. So we realized that what we needed was a vocabulary to who we wanted to be. Mm-hmm. So we came up with a mission statement. We came up with 11 words that really emulated what 11 Madison Park was at that time. And then we came up with 11 words that became Nomad. And um, everything that we did, we put through the lens of those words. And you know, we started coming up with our culture and our company ethos. And, and that just kept evolving. And I think a big part of it was for us, you know, endless reinvention was one of the words for 
I know it's more than one word, but it was one of the words. <laughs> and everyone that worked with us, you know, had a voice. And every year we would do this big strategic planning meeting where every single staff member had to come, no matter if you were, you know, a dishwasher reporter or if you were um, executive sous chef, everyone sat in, a, in and broke up into groups. And we had a whole bunch of different concepts that we had to sort of make presentations for. And a lot of our best ideas came from there, from people that did even work in those departments. I mean, we still sort of live that way today. We, everyone that starts, we let them know that they're here for a reason, that they have a voice and that they can impact what we do. And, you know, not to be cliche, but if you see something, say something. And, you know, not always do we make changes based on their opinions, but at least it's a conversation that we can have. Mm -hmm. And at least it allows us to to understand even more why we do what we do. And, you know, I think a few years later, we started really changing the way that we trained and started training the people uh, that worked for us about the why versus just the how and the what. Hmm. Yeah. So, actually, I got a question for you. It sounds like you got a pretty solid corporate structure then. So what's it like trying to get into your company to work for you? Is it a lot of series of interviews or is it, yeah, how does that go? It's right. funny. It sounds like we have a solid corporate structure and we, we do. We have a great corporate team, but we have such a small team. Everyone thinks that we're like this huge uh, business, but we're not. Like currently in our executive team and we have five people and in our corporate team, we have about nine. Uh, um, that's everyone definitely else key. Everyone on site. Yeah. But it was different pre-pandemic when we had more properties. There was about 60 people. But as we sold some of the properties, as we sold some of the hotels at Citadel, it sort of got smaller. But the good part about being, you know, having a corporate structure is that you do have a lot of these things laid out, like, you know, T&E policies and stuff like that. But we're not corporate enough that we have a lot of red tape. If we want to make decisions, we make them whenever we want. Mm -hmm. So in order to work for us, it's actually super simple. We don't hire people based on resumes. Resumes are obviously important in that we can read who you are and what you've done, but we hire people based on who they are as people and what they want to do. So some of our best hires have been people that have either never worked in hospitality or have worked in places that would not be deemed the right places by most businesses to, 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 uh, you know, to be hired. I remember one of the best interviews I had and one of the best hires I ever had was this gentleman named Jim Betts who ended up becoming our bar director at 11 Madison Park and his only uh, two hospitality credits in his resume were a diner and Chili's. No um, and <laughs> But those, you know, those places you know, teach you the basics better than anyone else does, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah. maybe so. I've never really seen their, um, their training manuals, but, you know, he just had never encountered fine dining or like higher in hospitality, but he was just a standout person and he came in and he was super prepared and, you know, it was also just the way he talked, his mannerisms, he was like a real person. He wasn't robotic. He genuinely cared. And also you spent a lot of time with these people. So it's like, hey, did you get a good vibe? Do you want to hang out with this person at the end of the day? Right. Not that that you need to hang out with everyone you work with by any means, but it's just about hiring people that are just generally good and that like want to do something not because of money, but they want to help people just because that's who they are as people. Mm -hmm. So at one point, obviously, Nomad Group, the Nomad Group becomes involved with Sudell. How does, yeah. the, was that like a, sort of an investment or did they buy your company or how did that work? So our company was called Make It Nice. And that was, you know, Will, well, Will, Jeff, uh, Daniel and I, and then obviously other people that worked with us. And we always were partners with Sudell and Sudell owned the Nomad brand. Okay. Uh, and we managed our food and beverage. And the pandemic happened. And then 
sadly there was a split between I call them mom and dad, which was Will and Will and Daniel, <laughs> and they just had their differences and decided to part ways. And when that happened, obviously it was tough because the company that was built on this relationship between dining room and kitchen, and this like you know sort of having the pendulum be in the middle and having this team make all the decisions that it wasn't sort of a chef-driven restaurant, it wasn't a restaurant-tour-driven restaurant, was missing half of the equation. And sadly, for whatever reasons, Daniel and Andrew, which is the CEO of Sadal, um, weren't seeing eye to eye. And, you know, Will stepped out of the company and and Daniel kept the, the spaces. And, you know, at the end of the day, Daniel didn't really want the nomads. He wanted to focus on 11 Madison Park and his other, you know, Claridge's project and other things that were happening. And I had to make a really tough decision because we had three nomads and another one in the works. And like I worked with them for 15 years, mm-hmm. I had people that at this point are working with me for eight, nine, 10 years. And um, I couldn't really step away from the brand. So I chose to leave, make it nice uh, and join Sidel. Uh, and Sidel started doing food and beverage in-house. And I got to have even a bigger role, which, you know, Andrew's great because he sees people's skill set. He allows people to maybe have roles that they're not fully ready for or that they've not done, but it's sort of sink or swim. And he has support you in every way. And um, I got that opportunity to head up food and beverage for the company. Yeah. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. And it was awesome because I got to retain a lot of my team and a lot of my staff. And sadly, three months later, COVID happened. Um, uh, but, you know, we're still here and uh, we're still trucking along. And I'm happy to say that we still have some staff members that were with us from day one. Oh, that's good because, yeah, like obviously the big news of the service industry during COVID is losing all the staff, right? Everybody left. So um, yeah. it's good that you were able to retain some key people. Yeah, I mean, we lost a ton of people. And mm-hmm. honestly, for me, you know, it's I'm I love when I come back to New York. I mean, well, New York is my home, but I've been in London for a bit. But I love when I come back to New York and I get to see all the places that my different teammates have like spearheaded or open or work at. Yeah, and for me, cool. it's just like an extension of the family. But when, you know, when we, when COVID happened and I'll use, I guess, a COVID word, when we had to pivot, we started making meals for people in need working with World Central Kitchen. And for me, it was really important uh, to give back to the community, but also it was important that I could bring some of my teammates back and give them health insurance. Yeah. So all of us, you know, came in every day and made, you know, 15,000 meals a week for, for people that needed it. And, you know, a lot of those people went other ways and opened other places. Like one of them is Maddie Sperling that, that, you know, just opened a great restaurant at Hudson Yards. And, you know, sadly, a lot of those people didn't stay, but when we reopened in a bigger way, some people came back and then when we reopened or when we opened London, uh, quite a few teammates that have worked with me, in New York or LA decided to move over here to open the project. Oh, that's cool. And a great experience for them as well, right? I mean, London, where basically the whole craft cocktail scene began. That's, uh, that's yeah. an amazing experience. No, it's, it's pretty incredible. And like, you know, we, we were the first or one of the first big openings post pandemic, which had a lot of its own hardships. But to me, it was really special because we were like this beacon of light at the end of the tunnel showing that this industry that everyone thought was dead isn't dead. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of changes that need to happen in the industry. A lot of changes did happen in the industry, uh, you know, definitely for the better. But it was like to open something so big that was planned before in such a big city just felt so amazing and so special in a time that I think people needed hospitality the most. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, Leo, we're going to let you get out of here. You've given us a lot of time, but I just wanted to talk. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about one more thing. We, I just came from Tales of the Cocktail this year. It was my first visit to that, and it was, I loved that was it so first? much. Yeah, it was my first sale. I've been in New Orleans several times, but I'd never been to Tales of the Cocktail, and it was so fun. Learned so much, got to try so much great shit. But uh, you are were part of the apprentice program, like in the sort of more yeah. mentor role there. So uh, we've interviewed a few people who have been part of the apprentice program, but nobody who's sort of done the mentoring. So talk yeah. to us about your experience doing that. I got so lucky. Like I said, I I applied for the first ever apprentice, or actually the second ever apprentice program in 2009, and I was chosen... The first year was 2008, where it was like a bunch of misfits. And I call them misfits because all of them are my friends. But uh, <laughs> it was like an organization. It was like a bunch of misfits coming together to put on this event. Uh, there was a little bit more structure to the second year. And they had John Darragon and and Don Lee and and, uh, and Jeff that were running this apprentice program. And I came on and it was super hard. It was insane hours. And... It was so eye-opening in so many ways. I got to meet all of these people in the industry that I looked up to for so long. And I got to work basically 18 to 20 hours a day for seven days, you know, batching cocktails and yeah. uh, and juicing and running these events. And I loved it. But the biggest thing that I loved about it was, I guess, I mean, I don't, I don't want to use this term, but it's it felt like I was going to war. Uh, and right. I think the bond that you make with people when you're like in the shits so badly and you just need to make things happen is a bond that's pretty unbreakable. And mm-hmm. uh, what I think we noticed after that was how um, like how great not only the networking was, but this chance to like mentor and meet so many amazing people from around the world um, that were all coming together for the same purpose. So the next year they asked me to come and be part of the program in a bigger way and help run it. And then I helped run it for another nine years. And we, you know, sort of kept refining and building the structure. And we got to hire a group of 70 people every year from around the world that were bartenders. And we, um, no, not only was it just this craziness, we started making it a lot more educational. I think the Tales crew and Anne at the time did a good job at like showing us New Orleans. But then we started bringing in uh, a lot of these amazing speakers or speaking ourselves and giving seminars to the actual apprentices that were more relevant about the things that they were doing uh, every day. And it just became this huge group of people um, from around the world that have this like kin and this like relationship that to me, it's 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 almost like family. So mm-hmm. I know that I can go in any of these cities, look up any of the old apprentices, and I have somebody there, uh, and vice versa. And for me, it's also been great because anytime I open a place, I know that there's a solid group of people out there that you know I could pull from to help support. And I did it for 10 years. It was some of the best times of my life. It was some of the hardest times of my life. Um, I would do it again in a heartbeat. But you know, it's sort of sad that so many changes happened with Tails, and I was really happy this year to see that it came back in a bigger way. Mm-hmm. Because for me, it was something that was so life-changing and that really solidified my desire and my love for this career. You know, we get to take care of guests every day, and and I don't know, I, I, I love what I do because I love the nobility of what I do. I love that people come in every day and we get, get to create a safe space for them to create memories. And I love that I get to be sort of somebody's part of somebody's life story, even if I may not remember them. And the apprenticeship program to me was that, but with the industry, I got to like create these bonds and these memories and like give a little bit of myself and what I've learned to a group of younger like bartenders that were coming in 
And I felt like I got to inject myself a little bit into, you know, the world bar community, but also the amount that I learned from them. Um, you know, it was a lifetime of memories that forever shaped me. And I know it shaped a lot of those people as well. That's amazing. Okay, Leo, thanks so much for doing this. Tell us a little bit about, tell our listeners where they can uh, follow you on social media and what's upcoming with uh, Nomad and uh, what we need yeah. to look out for. So um, I'm on Instagram mostly. It's uh, at L Robichek. That's L-R-O-B-I-T-S-C-H-E-K. I'm currently opening the last bar in London, which is called Common Decency. It's like our big subterranean cocktail bar here where Nomad Bar New York was sort of um, our cocktail bar that was shaped after an old school pub, but like through a modern day lens, that was a craft cocktail bar. This is sort of shaped after like a lounge that has, you know, DJs and music, but at the same time still has that same old like fun feeling of going to a cocktail bar, but that's a little bit more rambunctious. And that actually opens next week on the 28th. Wow. Or maybe the week before this airs on the 28th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going back in time. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. uh, We're also working in a few other projects. We're working on a Nomad. I don't even know if I'm allowed to say these things, but we're working on a Nomad in Copenhagen. uh, Oh, wow. Nomad in Vienna. And uh, we just opened a project in Williamsburg called The Penny, which will have a food and beverage component opening in the beginning of the year. We also have Nomad Wynwood opening in about two years. And that's in Miami, but it's our first ever residences that'll have a big nomad bar on the rooftop that'll have live music. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we can sign on a new project in New York that I can't really talk about just yet. Right. Um, so look out well, for that. We'll have you back on when uh, when that one's getting ready to open so we yeah. can talk about it. Thanks so much for giving us your time, Leo. You're a super busy guy and we really appreciate it. Oh, um, thank you. Amazing. I mean, yeah. You're the one that's running for mayor. I mean, that's... <laughs> yeah. yeah. I feel like a, nothing I've done compares to that. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a big difference between running and winning. <laughs> but, yeah. Hey, uh, don't yeah. Try. yeah, exactly. Well, thanks again, Leo. We really appreciate it, man. Keep up the good work. All your bars and sound amazing. And we're looking forward to all the new ones opening up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Yeah, have thanks. a great night. That was terrific. Have a good night.